I turn on my computer. I go online. Welcome. Welcome. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. We the old school. Yeah, old school. We the old school. Yeah, old school. Hello, everyone. This is Hit Factory. As always, I'm here. I'm here. Carly's here. And we are thrilled to have our guest with us today. She is a staff writer at Jacobin and the co-author of Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. It's Megan Day. Megan, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm also here. Is that your routine that you do at the top of the episode? Just for this one. We're all here, though. We're all here. Uh, and it's and it's great to have you with us. Um, today, we are talking about a really fun one. It is Nora Ephron's You've Got Mail. You've Got Mail. From 1998. Megan, you recently wrote a piece for Jacobin that I think offers an analysis of this film and really just like the political ennui of the entire 90s at large that goes beyond anything that uh, that we've been able to catalyze on this show up to this point. And uh, when we read it, we just we had to have you on to talk about it a little bit. So again, we're thrilled to have you. And uh, I think a, a big portion of this show is just going to be discussing some of the contents of that piece and uh, and that central argument that you make. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad to do it. I'm glad you guys like the piece. It seemed like the piece was surprisingly divisive. Um, I would have assumed that people would have just uh, I mean, right. It's kind of obvious. There's a film about a, um, you know, a, a woman whose independent business is being is being put under by a mega chain corporation. Um, this film obviously has politics. Mm-hmm. The question is, what are those politics? I hadn't seen anybody write about the politics, but actually some of the reaction was um was very negative people saying that they didn't they didn't like you know the idea that I had looked into the politics of the film at all not everything has to be political this sort of gripe that you hear but I think if anything is political it's probably you've got mail yeah yeah well and interestingly that almost kind of speaks to the central argument of your piece <laughs> that right. uh, the 90s was sort of steeped in this apoliticism and and that kind of idea of not making everything political Um, Yeah, I definitely remember when I was reading your piece, I remember thinking as one of the the children weaned off of the nectar, as you say, of that kind of anti-politicism of the 90s. Like I remember thinking back to being that age and feeling like the word political was a dirty word, like it was something taboo. And to your point in the piece, like an impediment to peace and, and kind of contentment. And so it's interesting that people had the response that they did, because that certainly buttresses your argument further, I think. Yeah, I mean, I did. I tried to make the case in the piece that um, that, that era is over the era of sort of dominant anti-politics has in some ways has in some ways come to an end. Um, you know, if if one of the themes of this movie is that love transcends political boundaries, we do now live in a in a very different kind of um culture in which actually people are ex- expected to fight with their, you know, relatives about who's voting for whom at the Thanksgiving table. So certainly something has changed, but that doesn't mean that we aren't stuck with this sort of legacy of anti-politics. And I think especially when it comes to the separation between politics and culture, we see that um, quite strongly. So that's probably where it's coming from. To be honest, though, I think that a lot of the backlash to the piece was pretty much people who didn't like the political argument, actually, that was being offered by the piece itself. And so <laughs> they they were in- instinctively saying, don't don't attribute politics to this piece. But the reason why that they were saying that is because they didn't like the politics that I was attributing to the uh, movie and that in, in turn, I was actually teasing out and trying to offer as an alternative. So so it's so in a way, I don't think that those people are um, being anti-political. I think that they're they're being political, but they just are um, they're asking not to talk about politics, if that makes sense. I think so. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we really like doing on this show is ruining people's favorite 90s movies for them by uh, (laughs) coaxing out these kind of dark political messages that um, that kind of sort of tell on the era and tell on the directors and and the filmmakers a lot of times. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, 
I love this movie. Um, I, I, I'm some people I think who responded very positively. I should add that the the response really to this piece really was actually divisive in the sense that there were also a lot of people who responded very positively to the piece. Some of them though said that they liked the piece because it correctly um, put "You've Got Mail" in its place as a you know a piece of trash or whatever. But I I actually don't think that. I mean I think that Nora Ephron is is really smart. I think the piece is a pleasure. I mean I think the movie is a pleasure to to watch. Um, and I think even having given it a lot of consideration, I still find that there's something very comforting about this movie. The whole purpose of the piece was to figure out what precisely is so comforting underneath just the basic sort of aesthetic trappings of the film, the very sort of nostalgia of it, both the nostalgia of a kind of like um, fantastical upper middle class Manhattan life, which frankly, I think probably would have been elusive at the time anyway, um, yeah. but yeah. still still serves as a kind of a kind of a nostalgic fantasy um, certainly today. And then additionally, there's the nostalgia of the sort of, um, the innocent portrayal of digital life, a sort of burgeoning digital life. I was thinking yeah. that, you know, Meg Ryan in some ways is, is like the first social media addict. The the film, I, had, I didn't have time to theorize this in, in the piece that I wrote because it's kind of a separate topic, but the film actually opens with her like rubbing her hands together when her boyfriend leaves the house. She's like excited <laughs> to be able to check the check her AOL, but that's yeah. actually quite dark. I mean, a lot of people actually struggle with social media addiction and actually do today wait for their loved ones to like be out of sight in order to check their apps and whatnot. And that's, it's, it's not very, it's not as sweet as it's portrayed in the film. And in any case, it's very nostalgic um, and to watch it. And, and it does, it gives me warm, fuzzy feelings. But the thesis that I'm trying to advance is that the, the real source of the warm, fuzzy feelings is actually the story, not just the aesthetic trappings. Um, and, and the story tells us that you don't have to resist so hard. In fact, resistance is standing in the way of a kind of political reconciliation or a reconciliation to your own subordination, which ultimately you'll just sort of give in to. Um, the, the line that I that I put both in the piece and in the uh, the the subtitle of, of the piece is, you know, what if the man is Mr. Right, right? Like that is, that's that's the real comforting fantasy. I think especially after, um, and we can get into this, after about a half a decade of a kind of very early to mid nineties type of resistance, which is completely futile because it's completely individualized and it's all about like personal consumption choices. Mm-hmm. Obviously that wasn't working. And it's very frustrating when the type of resistance that you're engaging in isn't working. So this is the new fantasy is that maybe you don't even have to resist that hard at all. We'll absolutely get into that um, because, yeah, that is sort of one of, if not sort of the overarching thesis that we've been able to derive for most of the 90s movies that we've been exploring is um, that distinction between politics and culture and the atomization of of rebellion in a lot of different ways and, and how that American dream is just sort of pulled apart at the seams because there's no collective identity anymore. There's no idea of this like movement towards uh, meaningful resistance against the corporate takeover of America. But before we get too far into things, I, I, I do want to do some house cleaning and all of the performative stuff at the beginning of the show. As always, you can uh, follow us uh, at Hit Factory. It's Hit Factory Pod on Twitter. We also have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Um, and we are going to be donating all the proceeds for the entire month of November, starting with this episode and, and to the end of the month, to Labor Notes, an organization that Megan introduced us to. Um, they are a publication by and for rank-and-file union activists, and they also put on trainings and conferences to introduce labor activists to ideas and to one another to build a stronger labor movement. So thanks so much, Megan, for for introducing us to those guys. We're, we're happy to give. I'm so excited that you guys are doing that that's so great and also that people you're 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 telling people so that they can go check out labor notes i think it's um, an, ama- an amazing organization and um, i hope that people will take take a moment to go check it out yeah labornotes.org i believe is is the website there if you all want to do a little bit more research or even give individually um yourself there mm-hmm. before we get too deep into the analysis we're just going to do a quick rundown and, and also offer a, a very brief sort of back of the box synopsis of you've got mail so people know what we're talking about even if they haven't engaged. But you should, because I think now we can say all three of us are on record as really enjoying this movie, uh, even in spite of its of its political persuasions. But uh, as we've already said, You've Got Mail was released in 1998. It was written and directed by Nora Ephron. 
And uh, it's based on an Ernst Lubitsch film called The Shop Around the Corner from 1940, which is itself an adaptation of a play by, I hope I say this right, Miklos Laszlo. Uh, that play is called Perfumery. Uh, there's also a musical adaptation starring Judy Garland in there for good measure called uh, In the Good Old Summertime from 1949. Mm -hmm. So this particular story uh, has has some legs to it. It's an evergreen tale of love and capitalism. <laughs> that it is. Um, and the 1990s were a pretty banner decade for Nora Ephron. Um, she made her directorial debut in 1992 with This Is My Life, and then went on to make Sleepless in Seattle, uh, the Steve Martin comedy Mixed Nuts. And in 1996, right before this film, uh, she also directed Michael, in which John Travolta plays an angel opposite real-life angel Andy McDowell. Um, so that's a really fun one, too. And then uh, she caps off the decade with this film. Uh, it stars Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in the lead roles. Banner cast. Great cast here. Um, there's also Greg Kinnear, Parker Posey, Edith Bunker herself, Gene Stapleton. Dave Chappelle shows up for a minute. So does Steve Zahn. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a bang-up cast. And in terms of the movie story. I don't know, Megan, are you able to offer a, a really brief synopsis of the film? If, if, if that puts you on the spot, we can do it for you, of course, but. Not at all. It's, I think, I think the way to describe it is this. Meg Ryan's character runs a independent children's bookstore and it's a very charming place. And I think it's important to note that the place is sort of, um, the, the, the whole, um, the selling point of this place is the personal touch of the people who live there. Their sort of um, curatorial sensibilities and their deep knowledge of both children's literature and children themselves. So it's a wonderful place. It's called The Shop Around the Corner. This is a nod to the sort of previous iterations. But I will say that this one actually differs significantly from previous iterations. Nora Ephron put a, a very heavy spin on this, I think. <laughs> um, um, and um, so She's um, she's also, as I as I said earlier, uh, she's a social media addict, a 1999 social media addict. She loves to log in to her AOL account and um, exchange anonymous emails with uh, a man who is very charming, who she uh, uh, has, you know, she gets butterflies in her stomach every time she hears that iconic sound. You've got mail. Um, it turns out that she is her store is in the line of fire of a major bookstore chain that's based off of like a Borders or a Barnes and Noble. It's called mm -hmm. Fox Books. And we're quickly introduced to um, the incredible irony that the man that she's been corresponding with over AOL is in fact Joe Fox, who is the grandson of the uh, CEO of Fox Books and he himself, or the founder of Fox Books and he himself, I believe is, is the CEO or some sort of other high level executive. Um, and that, that sets up the drama for us. Um, I watched this when I was very young and sort of took it in as is. If I would have told you now, if, I, if, you, if you had told me the synopsis today and I was asked to guess how this movie goes, I think that I would tell you that probably what happens is that they fall in love and he realizes that he doesn't want to put her out of business because he's in love with her. Mm -hmm. That's not what happens in this movie. Amazingly, <laughs> that is the opposite of what happens. He yeah. realizes that it's her and then, he and then he continues to fall in love with her over email while he proceeds to put her out of business. Mm -hmm. Her shop closes up and it doesn't reopen. Like, it's honestly shocking. It's like the shop literally closes and doesn't reopen. And this movie still has a happy ending. And the happy ending is that she finds out that it's him. She realizes that really she, he's not so bad. I mean, this is the guy she's been corresponding with over email. The guy with the adorable golden retriever. The guy who set, likes to talk about, you know, the smell of bouquets of sharpened pencils in the fall. I mean, sure, he's not only a capitalist, a ruthless capitalist who actually destroyed her means of her livelihood and also, um, you know, her, her, her method of personal meaning making in this world. The shop is supposedly uh, started by her deceased mother. It's a, it's a place full of memories. It's, a, it's tied to her identity. It's gone now. And he destroyed destroyed it and she um falls in love with him anyway uh the end that's how this movie goes <laughs> there's there's a couple of other things that i think are really important which is that they both have uh partners who are not right for them throughout yes. the movie until eventually they don't and the most important of these actually I think that the parker posey character who plays tom hanks's bad girlfriend is very interesting in her own right but it's meg ryan's boyfriend who i think is really critical to understanding the politics of this film he is supposed to be a like left-wing 
columnist for the New York Observer. And he's constantly going on. He's kind of a Luddite-type figure. I mean, he's like very anti-technology, and it's supposed to be tenuously connected to his feelings about capitalism or or corporations or something like that. Not really well um, articulated. But in any case, he's kind of – he's got politics – he loves to talk about politics. He loves to talk about himself. Mm-hmm. He's sort of an arrogant, pompous, self-righteous, cloying leftist. And that, I think, is the image of, of leftism that was really dominant at this time. This is the late 90s. The idea that anybody's still clinging to these old nostrums about equality and inequality and blah, blah, is just... Uh, you know, just like kind of one of these like um, like uh, fake bleeding hearts, kind of kind of a phony. You know what yeah. I mean? The kind of person who would monopolize conversation at a party, um, and that these people are really standing in the way of um, true love. I mean, literally in the film, he is like his fig- his his character stands in the way of her being able to have, you know, true love, and he has to be swept aside, and his politics have to be swept aside in order to actually, um, in order to actually move the plot along um, which I realized uh, on my most recent viewing and I thought it was actually kind of kind of horrendous um, horrendous portrayal of, of the left but also very indicative in lots of ways yeah I when you when you had said the line about we're relieved when he when he exits the the story we're relieved that his p- politics are no longer something for us to contend with I realized what a good job they did of making him, kind of reprehensible and, and, um, and cloying to use your words. And, and I think the, the other, the other thing that I found fascinating about his character in particular is he has politics. Yes. But in speaking to your central argument, his politics are also fungible to a certain extent, right? Like you, you note that he ends up with the, the corporate newscaster, political newscaster. Who's a Republican. Who is a Republican. And on top of that, that he, you know, in positioning the politics the way that they do with him, it really speaks to this idea of politics as personality traits or as like neuroses, not as these deeply entrenched core beliefs that relate to a lived experience or a material existence. And with him in particular, who you would think would be the most, you know, bleeding heart to use your to use your phrase, he also really lives true to that idea that politics in the 90s are just something to sort of live on the surface and then be swept away when, you know, you meet the right person and or when like the the situation changes. I was thinking about sort of this this argument that gets leveled at the left a lot of times in today's society where people advocating for for leftist policy who are not materially wealthy are often seen as just looking for a handout and then people who uh, do end up deriving some level of success within our society and under capitalism are seen as hypocrites and it almost feels like kind of like a proto version of that argument where where Greg Kinnear is principled only insofar as it benefits him and only insofar as it uh, is cohesive with his worldview. And advances his column, right? He cares about getting clips and that people are recording his TV spots and, and things like that. Yeah, it's this idea that anybody's still yammering on. This is this is after the end of history, right? The declaration that history has ended. The the Berlin Wall has fallen. The Soviet Union is gone. Um, the idea of you know communism has been demonstrated to be a total total failure. State communism has been demonstrated to be a total failure, and with it, socialism and all of this old lefty stuff. You know, the sort of archaic and anachronistic stuff about you know the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and so on. Anybody still um, clinging to those old uh, dogmas in 1999 is probably a a grifter or a phony in some way. They're probably Mm -hmm. doing it as a sort of self-aggrandizing personality trait or performance. Um, And and I liked some of the words that you used. I mean, I think that neurotic and hypocritical are probably the two two best ways to describe Greg Kinnear's character, that that his fixation on politics is actually a type of neurosis that has to do with his personality and his desire to be admired uh, and his 
desire to be seen on the right side of things and uh, hypocritical in the sense that you're right. He, he, he sort of, um, he abandons his uh, beliefs at the, at, or he, he see, he appears to actually be um, somebody who could very easily sell out, sell out his, his beliefs. Um, and there are glimmers of that happening throughout the film. Um, the most important scene with him is actually the scene that precipitates his breakup with Meg Ryan's mm-hmm. character. I completely uh, missed it my first several times watching this film because I was really young. And when you're really young, you don't really know so much about, um, you know, fascism in Spain. Um, so, um, so Meg Ryan's character, and we'll just call them by their, uh, the actors' names. I think it's easier. So mm-hmm. Meg Ryan and Greg Kinnear are at, um, they're at the movies. Meg Ryan's store has already been shut down. She's continuing to fall further and further in love with this guy on AOL. And um, she, one of the bookstore employees, this much older woman who had been there when Meg Ryan's mother was running the store, mentions that she had fallen in love in Spain with the man who, quote unquote, ran Spain. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Meg Ryan thinks this is so whimsical. You know, it just could never be. He was the leader of Spain and his life was so crazy and it could never be. So she tells this to Greg Kinnear and he's like, that was um the fascist dictator, uh, Francisco Franco. And that's crazy. And Meg Ryan sort of defending this, like, well, people do, you know, they do all kinds of unaccountable things in foreign countries. He says something to the effect of, sure, they buy leather jackets that are too expensive, but they don't fall in love with fascist dictators. And then he says something to the, to the extent of, if it was an anarchist or a socialist, it would be normal, but he's right. a fascist and it's not. <laughs> Which is like, I, I think, I mean, quite relatable, actually. This is one of the moments where I feel like the character is written a probably correct like that that's actually like a pretty um reasonable portrayal of a leftist a lot of the the other portrayals of the left are like really off off base but like i think all of us would say yeah i think that if she had fallen in love with an anarchist or a socialist during the spanish civil war or thereafter it would be like more permissible than to fall in love with a fascist um (laughs) and actually we're meant to be on meg ryan's side during this exchange he just doesn't understand that greg kinnear's character just doesn't understand that love is more powerful than politics. Politics is this pesky thing that gets in the way and there's no accounting for romance really. And, and um, we find we're supposed to find him kind of fussy and just like, um, like a, like a dog with a bone. And, and this is the moment when she says that he says, I could never be with somebody who doesn't care about politics as much as I do. And then she admits that she didn't vote. She went to get a manicure instead. And this actually precipitates their breakup, but we're meant to be on Meg Ryan's side during this whole exchange. Um, and it worked well enough that on my first several viewings of the film, I didn't even notice it. Right. Um, I only really noticed it on my last viewing of the film. I think it's, I think it's pretty surprising. But I think that in that in that in that scene is the kernel of the of the entire sort of political perspective of the film, actually. You are on her side, like almost immediately. And you find him, like you said, cloying. And right. Who among us has not inadvertently fallen for a, a proud boy or like a MAGA <laughs> gun girl or something on right. the Internet? Right. And uh they're so charming. They are. They're incredibly <laughs> charming if you set their politics aside. Um, no, but, uh, you know, you do a really great job of of interrogating this uh, this boyfriend character of, of Greg Kinnear and his politics. Uh, you did mention briefly Tom Hanks's uh, love interest, played by Parker Posey, in the movie. And I, I thought that there was an interesting sort of dichotomy here as well, um, in the sense that in both cases, the the couples sort of say we're perfect for one another. And the only thing that is really a differentiating factor between Parker Posey and Tom Hanks is that she has bought into and believes herself to be sort of this cannibalistic, bloodless, ruthless capitalist. And Tom Hanks, Joe Fox, has this sort of self-perception as being the everyman or the good guy or driven by something other than that uh, that bloodlust. You know, I love how you've totally forgotten that you've had any role in her current situation. So obtuse. It's so insensitive. Reminds me of someone. Me. <laughs> I don't know if you had any particular feelings about that or, or any way to to kind of penetrate that, but I'm trying to figure out what the film is saying there. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I this whole thing about the Parker Posey Tom Hanks relationship, I think, is um, under theorized. 
um, mm-hmm. I guess by everybody, by me. I did not think I did not write about it <laughs> in this piece. Um, there aren't like a ton of theorists of you got mail running around uh, in the in the in the discipline. I feel that this area could be really fleshed out. Um, so I, I trailblazer think, that you, know, you are. <laughs> right. So I'll give it a shot. Well, I think that for one thing, um, I think you're right, actually, that Parker Posey, it's like they're supposed to be perfect for each other because they're both they're both sharks. They're both predators. Right. But ultimately, he has a sort of gooier center than than she does. And so and so they have to they have to part ways. Um, in fact, if I recall correctly, their breakup scene is precipitated by her blithely uh, saying that he put Meg Ryan out of business and mm-hmm. sort of laughing about it. Yep. <laughs> And the truth of the matter is that he did, in fact, put her out of business. He just doesn't feel like laughing about it anymore, right? Because he's starting to develop. He's just starting to develop some sympathies for her. So that's the major difference. The portrayal of Tom Hanks's character is quite troubling in some ways. Not because, um, not because there aren't people who, you know, run businesses who aren't nice people. I know, I know a few of them myself. Um, my my father runs a business. He's as far as I could tell a pretty nice person. It's the idea that me- mechanic mechanically, the mechanically going about the business of um, protecting one's bottom line is actually an unpretentious activity. That's the portrayal in the film that troubles me. And that, in fact, what Greg Kinnear's character is doing is extraordinarily pretentious, writing articles about, you know, this or that cause, inequality, the working class and so on, um, is really pretentious. And that um, simply um, uh, managing a large business, which extracts surplus labor value from its employees and de- destroys the kind of um, uh, uh, labor and cultural ecosystems of every single environment that it finds itself in, somehow just really honest. It's really candid. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. therefore actually really relatable. That seems to be the portrayal that we're getting of, of Tom Hanks. And that's why he's not a good fit for, for Parker Posey in a way, because she too is... Um, she she in some ways is like Greg Kinnear's character in the sense that she's uh, very wrapped up in her own self-image, right? And she, But it's just that in her case, she enjoys the opposite image of Greg Kinnear's character. She enjoys exactly. the image of being the predator rather than the defender of the prey. I actually feel like the the casting of Tom Hanks is perfect for Joe Fox to further... Uh, the the contentment that we have of the two characters ending up together and us not being, you know, bothered by the pesky uh, details of the fact that he's ruined her livelihood. Tom Hanks is really the only person who could portray a ruthless, cannibalistic capitalist in a way that we still adore him. Like he's, he's still Tom Hanks, even though he's Joe Fox, right? And in that way, he's perfect for that, for that very narrow aperture that we're looking at him through because he is still the everyman to a certain degree, which supports this argument that you're saying that it is this sort of like wholesome, candid act to just run your business to the best of your ability and seek to make money at the end of the day. And also the idea that I, I didn't write about this in the piece either, but um, I think it's it's a really interesting detail at the end. He does come out at the end of the film slightly reformed, but it's not that he's stopped running Fox Books. Um, rather, Fox Books does it is in fact up and running, and you know, like we we pointed out, the shop, uh, the independent children's bookstore closes. He actually absorbs um, one of the one of the employees <laughs> right. from mm-hmm. from the children's bookstore, and, and who is now the manager of the children's department at Fox Books. And yeah. so it's like, I think that that's symbolic of the idea that we're supposed to think that um, he's actually, he in his business practices has taken the best of what her way of doing business had to offer. Um, we have now he's installed someone who has like brings a personal touch, brings a lot of like curatorial expertise. There's a ridiculous line. Oh, I can't even, we could unpack this forever. <laughs> Is about, this the PhD, Canada? Um, <laughs> PhD thing. The idea that this employee who's now been installed at Fox Books makes people get, only hires people with a PhD in literature to work in the children's <laughs> section. I don't even want to go into it. It's so ridiculous. But you understand that that's, what, that's what's meant to be conveyed by that maneuver at the end. Is that actually, look, we're going to destroy the this kind of um, previous way of doing business. To be clear, this is not even, I, I want to be clear that I, that, 
the this is not a matter of like workers versus capitalists is actually petty bourgeois and capitalists right mm-hmm. but I, I still think that there's something really interesting in here about um there's a kind of apologia for like um for like a the new face of corporate mega chain monoculture capitalism that it, it's going to crush the the old model the old more personal more humane model of, of doing of doing business but it might be able you might be able to teach teach them a few tricks in the process of simply relenting to um to allowing them to sort of steamroll over you that seems to be the message of yeah. that particular plot and yeah. that there's a there's a, a flickering of salvation in the corporate monoculture right that there's actually like a place for these people that they can be saved and not only absorb but thrive under mm-hmm. under that that model, which is a, a, a scary thought in and of itself, but one that definitely speaks to the argument you're making. And I was thinking specifically about, you know, you you posit that the two ways that that one can sort of rebel under this this monolith of of corporate consumption is through personal romantic bravery and through, you know, the principled defense of of small businesses. And I was thinking about the sort of other side of that coin is that Tom Hanks in ending up with Meg Ryan's character is actually, that's actually an act of absolution. That is what tells us that he's a good person, that he gets to kind of signal, he gets to virtue signal that he is, you know, a person who has a heart and believes in small business and believes in, you know, the kindness of humans, that he's not a totally ruthless capitalist, uh, that there is this sense of cleansing or sort of, you know, I was telling Aaron, it made me think of Elon Musk and Grimes. (laughs) I have not made that connection. That's hilarious. He gets to sort of say like, oh, I'm I'm like with this artist, I'm right. anti-establishment, right? Like I'm sort of outside the the man, but he's not. He's right. just like dating a weird musician. And he gets to kind of uh, adopt and synthesize some of her quirkiness and a lot of her credibility as an artist and someone out of the mainstream, uh, you know, while he's promoting coups in Bolivia. Right. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, yeah, I want to go back to this this idea of the, the sort of two dominant modes of rebellion that are posited in 90s films. So we haven't touched on this quite yet, um, but might as well now, that the argument that I'm trying to advance in the second half of the piece is that You've Got Mail has the bleakness of You've Got Mail's politics is really thrown into relief when you consider that it's actually got a darker worldview than the types of movies that came before it, which were themselves actually pretty limited and constrained in their political worldview. So in the early 90s, there were actually a lot of like romantic comedies and like big blockbuster dramas, romantic dramas that were focused on the idea of not selling out. I mean, this is kind of a cliche. We all know that this is Gen X's whole thing, right? Like, don't mm-hmm. be a son, right? Um, but it's true. I mean, that's true. Like, you think about like Reality Bites um, and Empire Records, which both had some some sort of like subcultural a- appeal, but were actually quite popular movies. Um, and then there's like really big blockbusters, um, which were like Jerry Maguire and Titanic. I both think are also about the sort of not not selling out in their own way. These are the four that I tried to focus on in the piece. Um, if you take a movie like um, Empire Records, this is a movie about a group of people who work at an independent shop and they are under threat of being taken over by a large, they work at a record store and they're under threat of being taken over by a large record store chain. This is essentially the same story as, as you've got mail in, in its, in, in its basic skeleton. Mm-hmm. Um, they mount a principled defense of small business through banding together to raise enough money to save their store from being taken over by installing their sympathetic manager as the, um, as the new, um, you know, owner of, of the store. So this is already a very, very limited, um, imagination for how you would go about resisting the march, the inexorable march of crushing corporate capitalism. It's like, well, we're going to keep our plucky, quirky small businesses alive. And this, of course, is the 90s, right? Like, every, it's all about, you know, like, um, think globally, but shop locally. You know, it's all about, mm-hmm. you know, like, people are starting to get into, like, you know, um, farmers markets and um you know and and sort of like it's the the mainstreaming of co-ops in urban environments you know food co-ops this is the kind of politics of of the era is um 
it's not, you know, organize, organizing the working class to take power from the capitalist class. It's a far cry from that. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really, it's pretty, it's pretty weak compared to the kinds of leftist politics that had come in decades before it. So Empire Records, however, if we're going to compare it to You've Got Mail, however limited it is, it really is kind of about raising a middle finger to the man. Um, You've Got Mail, <laughs> by contrast, is actually a film about um, realizing that uh, monoculture really isn't so bad. Like I like this point that you just made about how the the um, employment of one of Meg Ryan's employees in Joe Fox's store sort of shows that there's a place for people, the kinds of quirky people who are have autonomy in their workplace and who can find self-expression in their workplace. Don't worry, there's going to be a place for you in this new, crushing, soulless monoculture, right? Um, so I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that already the 90s films were um, – pretty limited in their anti-capitalist content. They were actually kind of more advocating in many cases, um, a more humane face of, of capital, um, you know, s- small business and so on. You see this in Jerry Maguire as well. I mean, his mm-hmm. whole thing was, that he wrote a, he wrote a manifesto against corporate soullessness and then started out on his own to like have a, do a, do sports management right. In a sort of like, <laughs> right. it's like, it's like boutique sports management. Boutique is the sports whole, yeah. Like, management. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and so um, you've got mail actually dispenses with even that very very limited um, imagination of how you would go about combating capital. It literally just says don't fight it. If you're fighting it, then you're you're missing out on opportunities for transcending all of those old bitternesses and those old anachronistic dichotomies. Um, the fantasy is that if you just give in, then the prosperity will be shared around. And in fact, Meg Ryan's character also, there's a throwaway line about how she's now becoming a children's book author herself or whatever, just to tie it all up and make sure that we know that she's actually better off than she was before. Mm-hmm. The film definitely has on display this this idea of, like you said, just acquiescing to this sort of consumer capitalist culture. There's a line early on that Carly pointed out to me where... And I think it's said in voiceover as Joe is writing, we'll, we'll keep consistent here, when Tom Hanks is writing Meg Ryan and is talking about Starbucks and says something along the lines of like, for $2.95, you not only get a cup of coffee, but you get uh, this defining sense of self. I don't know. There was a moment where I, I honestly could not tell if that was something that was uh, critical of that idea or something that was like embracing that and saying like, oh, none of these people know how to make conscious choices in their life anyway. What, what capitalism and, and what, what consumerism gives them is an opportunity to make choices about their consumption and in effect, helping them to sort of create their identity and shape this new, uh, this new idea of themselves that they didn't have before. That's a really interesting analysis of that. I, I like that. I think it's interesting the extent to which Starbucks actually pervades the film and the idea of Starbucks. It's everywhere. If I could also pin it down in the history of Starbucks, which I did have to do a little research for, for one of the lines (laughs) that I wrote, which I found myself like, wow, I'm learning a lot about the evolution of Starbucks. Starbucks is actually at this particular juncture, like right in the sweet spot between transitioning from what was considered a very successful chain that took the kind of like Empire Records model of independent, um, self-expressive small business. And it's starting to crop up all over. In 1999, I think 98 is the year when they start to open Starbucks overseas. Basically, it's the year when it's the tipping point where we're actually transitioning from a Meg Ryan type, a business that still retains a kind of Meg Ryan type um, um, reputation, even though it's really a a chain at this point, to like people Mm -hmm. starting to understand that it's actually becoming a Joe Fox type Mm -hmm. entity. It's right in that sweet spot. It's hard to actually... um, Imagine it now, because we think of Starbucks as being like McDonald's now. But in 1999, it was a little bit different. Um, it was it was like if you had taken if Meg Ryan had successfully propagated independent bookstores in in like a bunch of major cities in the United States. Um, so I, I think you could write a whole separate essay about the specter of Starbucks in this movie. I think it's significant that they actually <laughs> both go to Starbucks at separate times. Right at the beginning, it's yeah. almost yeah. like um, it's. I mean, in a way, I mean, I'm sure this was not intended by Nora Ephron or anybody else. I think that this is perhaps just like we're overreading, but it's kind of fun. 
fun. It's like the fact that they both go into a Starbucks at the beginning is sort of asking us to consider the extent to which each of them are in a way kind of representing one side of the Starbucks duality. Um, Totally. (laughs) Which will be my my next book. No, I'm joking. (laughs) Hey, maybe. I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, I want to get into, with with the time remaining, um, the second half of your argument uh, as it pertains to the current moment politically. Uh, You make, make I think, a a very fair and and good point about partisanship having reemerged and, and, you know, this... uh, this beast, you know, <laughs> rising from the ashes um, to, you know, make us argue about these kinds of things again. But I, I, I wonder what your take is on this sort of neoliberal takeover and this new synthesis of apoliticism in the sense of the modern Democratic Party. Um, it's it's sort of uh, slide towards centrism, the embracing of a lot of Republican figures and a lot of people with with conservative political backgrounds within that scheme. What's there to say about that from your perspective? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm surprised we, we took uh, this long to get around to it because I actually think that it's incredibly um, pervasive in, in my in my piece and important to the analysis of why you've got mail comes when it does. It's not like it emerges in a vacuum. It emerges after the completion of the hegemony of a type of third wayism in the Democratic Party. And it actually, I think, is a, is a pretty crystalline expression of that. So when I say third wayism, I mean, the, you're familiar with the, the third way, um, which was a center at one point. It also just refers to a sort of tradition. And the idea, this is a sort of like um, early 90s uh, phenomenon or late 80s, early 90s phenomenon, is that um, there is a third way between Uh, Mm -hmm. the left and the right, right? This is like a very much end of history concept. The old socialism versus capitalism dichotomy is um, just passe. It belongs to a different world, a different era. Um, We're striding into the future, um, finding not compromise, but um, transcendence of political Mm -hmm. divisions. That's Mm -hmm. the idea of the third way. Now, of course, it's complete fantasy. Um, I, you know, the left and the right actually are two, um, they are two points on a spectrum. And if you say that you are going to, if, if what is purporting to be the left has abandoned the idea that it needs to combat the right, including the sort of like a pro-capitalist, pro-corporate, um, free market, neo, neoliberal right, um, then essentially we have no left anymore. So everything shifts over to the right. So essentially the rightward shift in American politics, especially as relates to issues around um, uh, corporations and um, taxes and labor, is very much owing to the idea of this third way fantasy, the idea that you could transcend the left and the right. Well, in fact, what that actually ended up doing was just dissolving anything that remained of any kind of left. Not that we've had a very strong, robust, um, serious left in this country, sort of at all in when it comes to mm-hmm. major electoral politics, but still, what, whatever there was, the sort of like New Deal crusading reformism or great society or whatever, it all sort of evaporates and then we get the kind of new Democrats. Among them would be people like Joe Biden, uh, mm-hmm. Bill Clinton, yep. Hillary Clinton, that people in that mold were essentially um, in love with the idea of transcending the left versus the right. And, and this led them to actually play up their ability to compromise. Um, that was seen for a time, especially in the mid 90s in the Clinton era, as a sign of maturity on the part of the Democratic Party. Right. The old Democratic Party would stomp their feet and have a tantrum whenever Republicans wanted to do silly little things like cut Social Security and Medicare. Right. Um, but the new Democratic Party, I mean, is 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 comprised of adults and they understand how the world works. And Joe Biden, as Joe Biden has often said, um, he would sort of joke about how Social Security and Medicare were the quote unquote sacred cows of the old Democratic Party. But the new Democratic Party understands that you've got to play ball with Republicans. Well, what does that really consist of? It means that we don't have a major party standing up for things like Social Security and Medicare. We've got two parties, one of which wants to eviscerate them and the other of which is happy to, um, you know, uh, give a little here and there in exchange for X, Y, Z or just in exchange for a reputation for being um, mature, right, For, for doing for doing politics after the end of history, for for not um, being sort of juvenile socialists, for not being, you know, the kind of silly, uh, laughable, phony Greg Kinnear character, but in Congress. Um, So I think that this movie is in many ways an expression of the hegemony of that kind of thing. And I I, I also wanted to point out this piece, this part of the piece where I talk about 
you know, this sort of odd, the political odd couple was a very pervasive theme, mm-hmm. both in this film and in the 1990s in general. So um, Bill Clinton's strategist, James Carville, famously married uh, um, Mary Madeline, who was a re- Republican. Um, and this I in my household, I remember this coming up. It was like an object of fascination. And I do remember it being talked about on the news and by adults that I knew as um, being a sign. It was because there's something kind of romantic about it. I mean, people were kind of puzzled mm-hmm. by it, but there was also like, you know, what can you do? Love is love. And so I have this passage where I'm like, you know, James Carville and Mary Madeline is the blueprint for Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, or is the blueprint for like Birdie, the older uh, employee at the bookstore, at the bookstore, and uh, Franco, right? The idea that love transcends, that um, love transcends partisan lines, and that in fact partisan lines are these kinds of like trivial things that don't really refer to anything besides some sort of tribal affiliation or some personality quirk, right? right. Um, and this, and therefore, what's what's gone when you when you when you affect that kind of maneuver, what disappears is the idea that the left and right actually represent the interests of capital and labor, and that they represent opposing interests that are diamet- di- in diametric opposition to each other, and that if you know if one takes an inch, the other loses an inch. I mean, this whole idea is is gone when you enter into this um, sphere where you're sort of um, glorifying the romance of bipartisanship. It also speaks to this idea that I think is still very pervasive in in neoliberalism of today, which is that bipartisanship is a, a, a means through which you can be morally superior, not only mature, but have, you know, morals that are sort of unshakable and and be like a better person because you're willing to work with the bad guy. You know, we see that play out very materially in people like Nancy Pelosi, who are calling for like a good, strong Republican Party, right? And dismissing any sort of real differences between the left and the right, whatever those whatever those iterations may be. And it is this romanticizing of it. I think that this is, Nancy Pelosi is a good example for us to end on here, because I think that um, there was some, I think it was in 2008. Teen. On what occasion did Nancy Pelosi wear purple at some important event to symbolize oh. bipartisanship? You know what I'm talking about. So let's think about it this way: when we're talking about what neo what neoliberalism is, or what third wayism, or sort of like the new Democrat tradition is on the American so-called left, the very very center left, i.e., just the smack dab center, mm-hmm. um, or in a historical context, the center right. Um, what it actually <laughs> what it actually means is that you've got some people wearing red, not the good kind of red, but the Republican red, and then other people wearing purple right like that's that's kind of like the way that I'm trying to like help, help people visualize the shifting rightward that occurs when yeah. we have this these third way fantasies of, of transcending sort of partisan affiliations um, obviously the Republican Party has doesn't have those same fantasies there's 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 some some of that is starting to crop up with the sort of never Trump Republicans that they too and the sort of John McCain mold are sort of playing with these kinds of um, whim, whimsical bipartisanship um, but the Democrats have really gone in on it in a, in a different way and for much longer. And I think that You've Got Mail in some ways is actually the cultural expression of that same sensibility, um, which doesn't mean that it isn't a good movie. It's a great movie. I love it. it <laughs> I is. think it's so, I think it's, I think it's fun. I think that it's well-written. I think that it's a, a clever, clever story. I just think that there's something really sinister about it as well. <laughs> <laughs> I would totally agree. And I know that we're pretty much at time here, but uh, I, I did want to take a quick opportunity um, with the with the very little time remaining, because you more or less wrote the book on this, um, some of the doubts and and confusing what ifs aside, we are likely looking at uh, at a Joe Biden administration come January of next year, and you know I, I think that for a lot of people on the left, there is a lack of hope there or a sense of defeatism even in the face of uh, of an absence of Trump. And I guess I just wanted to, to kind of ask as a closing what what your advice would be or or what direction you think uh, we should be taking as as a collective immediately um, in, in the wake of that new administration. I mean, well, obviously, so let's just leave aside our projections about what we think is going to happen over the next week, which is a whole hour slash yeah. <laughs> about it constantly. Right. Um so let's say Joe Biden gets in. I mean, it has to be immediate, immediate assembled opposition because Joe Biden really represents the persistence of this exact type of political sensibility. Um, 
and amazingly represents the persistence of that sensibility past the point where you would think that it would have expired because there has been a collapse of consent to the neoliberal order because the world that it has built has itself collapsed. So over and over again, in fact, repeatedly. Um, and there seems to be a sort of mass agitational dissatisfaction with the kind of um, neoliberal sensibility that Joe Biden represents. And yet um, the power structures in the Democratic Party are such that this is kind of what we've ended up with at the end of the day. Um, yet we have something different. We have a stirring on the left. We have the resuscitation of the idea of a collective political subjectivity. We have a return to some of the ideas that were deemed sort of like dusty and passe and perhaps a bit pompous, you know, the Greg Kinnear kinds of ideas about like politics, left-wing politics, picking a side. Um, those have returned and they're no longer sort of being laughed out of um, polite society in quite the same way. And we have a resurgent socialist movement in the United States. We have a, um, a union movement that is learning how to strike again and that it it is that is becoming increasingly frustrated with um, national union leadership sort of slavish uh, dependence on and devotion to um, the, the the centrist uh, Democratic Party establishment. And those fractures are growing and they're going to continue to grow. And I think we need to exploit them. So I think that we have a lot of opportunities right now to actually push um I'm not going to push for a left-wing political resurgence. We have to continue to build left-wing organizations. Um, we have to continue to put our perspective out there and have it be, you know, a counterpost to that, which is going to be emanating from a Biden-Harris administration, which I think that we should just say outright, we shouldn't be enthusiastic about what's going to come out of that administration. Um, as to like what tactically we should do strategically, I mean, I think that's kind of a whole separate conversation. Um, but in terms of how we should... Um, comport ourselves, I would say, um, adversarially, <laughs> immediately, Absolutely. not just because not just as a matter of sort of our own individual expression of frustration, but because we have windows of opportunity that we haven't had in a very long time, and we have to take advantage of them immediately. I think that's a great place to end it. <laughs> uh, Megan Day, thank you so much for being here thank again. You, Megan. Um, we will make sure to link to the Jacobin piece in the show description so you all can read that. And again, check out labornotes.org uh, if you want to donate and give to a great organization. Thanks again so much, Megan. Yeah, thanks guys. Have a, have a good rest of your day. Thanks for having me, me on. You too. Bye. Take care. You know, sometimes I wonder. What? If I hadn't been Fox Books and you hadn't been the shop around the corner and you and I had just met. I know. Yeah, yeah. I would have asked for your number. Joe. And you and I would never have been at war. And the only thing we'd fight about would be which video to run on a Saturday night. Well, who fights about that? Well, some people. Not us. We would never. forgive this guy for standing you up and not forgive me for this tiny little thing I'm putting you out of business we the old school yeah old school we the old school yeah old school